Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Chong, who is a non-exec director on the board of Medway NHS Foundation Trust, which is a hospital in Kent. Jenny is an amazing polymath. She has a corporate investment background. She now sits on boards and committees at the Design Museum, the Egypt Exploration Society, Orthopaedic Research UK, and also Imperial College London's Imperial Venture Mentoring Service. She's an advisor for the Engineering Faculties Technology Expert Service and a mentor on the NHS Innovation Accelerator. And she also advises on fintech, medtech and social impact startups. So Jenny has an amazing wealth of knowledge and interesting perspectives on the digital health sector. So today I'm going to talk to Jenny about digital health from a board perspective, but also from an entrepreneurial perspective. And I'm really keen to hear about Jenny's comparative experience working in the corporate sector to now uh, working predominantly with the NHS. So Jenny, it's really lovely to have you here with me today. Thank you for having me, Victoria. It's a pleasure. And Jenny, for our audience, I wonder if you could just start us off by describing what life is like for a non-exec director of a, an NHS trust. So that, that role might be new to some people who are listening. So just talk us through what a uh, non-exec director sorry, does. Not a problem, Victoria. In fact, it was quite new to me when I was recruited into this role. Because when I was kept on the shoulder by the headhunter, um, I myself, I have to admit, I had to Google what a non-exec director was. And so what a non-exec director does is we hold the executive team to account. So in the perspective of our NHS trust, I will hold like the CEO, the chief people officer, the chief financial officer, hold them to account for what they have committed to. But I also provide that sounding board when they have issues or when they need to bounce off ideas is to bring me in and say, what do you think about it? How can I make things more robust? But also as a non-exec director, uh, we attend these monthly board meetings. And when I go for these meetings, I have to be prepared. First, I have to read the papers. And I also have to triangulate that what is documented in the papers is an accurate reflection of what is happening on the ground. So during uh, the time before that, I might actually go around walking in the hospital. I might want to reassure myself that documented papers is reflected from the people I can speak to on the ground. So I might choose different departments to walk around with. I might tap some other people on the shoulder and say, actually, talk me through what you're doing. And so that when I go for the meetings, I'm a lot more prepared and a lot more assured about what's happening. And then during the board meetings, I can more confidently challenge and ask questions to make sure that the executives I need help to account. But a big difference between executives and non-execs is that I am not operational. So the exact team were the ones executing their strategy and delivering it daily on the ground, whereas I tend to take more a step back and hold them account, but also with this uh, kind of like eye to make sure that actually I am able to try glitch and make sure that what they say is indeed what's happening. And as someone who was new, as I understand it, to the NHS when you took on your non-exec role, the NHS is so complex. A hospital has so much going on. How did you find that introduction to the NHS and, and how different is it to your corporate roles that you've been in before in terms of how it's organised and the politics and the, the machinations? It's interesting because I remember when I 
first left on the corporate world. And then when I got tapped on the shoulder to do this role, one of the questions that was asked in the interview was, oh, well, Jenny, you know, the NHS is pretty slow. It might not be as fast paced as you would have experienced in investment banking. Uh, so how are you going to like manage that difference? And I thought, that's quite true. It's going to be quite a mindset change. But I thought, you know what, if I'm going to be new to the NHS and healthcare, actually being slow is good because it gives me a chance to understand the industry properly and give me a chance to find my feet. And so I joined the NHS on the 1st of Feb 2020. And that couldn't be a more chaotic time to join, I think, because within a month we were all locked down. All meetings were online, and I think it was all hands to the pump. So when people ask me, well, how was it like before COVID and after COVID? I said, actually, I don't know because I joined during COVID. So I had to hit the ground running. So it's interesting joining healthcare because I thought that the pace would be much, much slower. But when I joined, I found that actually everybody needed to change the way of working. They needed to embrace innovation a lot more they had to problem solve a lot more, which was probably very different to how the NHS was like before COVID. So it was a great introduction because actually that was the pace I was really used to working with. I was also really used to work with people who love to problem solve, who love a really hard challenge and love to kind of like challenge each other and not be afraid of failure. And that was how it was like when I joined. So it actually was a really good introduction. And I felt like that with my digital background, because I was initially a bit hesitant that, well, I have zero understanding of healthcare. I've not worked in the public sector before, but I'm really good at understanding digital and technology. And when I joined, actually those skills were really quite valid. So I really enjoyed the experience of joining NHS and I still enjoy it to this day. But you also do ask about what's the difference between working in the NHS versus how it was like when I was in the corporate sector. So I was in investment banking, worked in Canary Wharf, and I did that for about more than 20 years. I worked across a range of different technologies and, and I think there are a number of differences. If I start off with people, I think different personalities gravitate towards different jobs. So the people you find working in banking and tech are quite different to the people you'll find in the NHS. So that took a bit of getting used to because the language that people use is different. The pace that people work to is different. If I was to work on a trading floor where we are literally taking bets on a very fast moving market, you need to be really comfortable with taking a huge amount of risk. But you also need to be really comfortable with failure because not every trade you make is profitable. So you need to know when to cut your losses and you need to bounce back really quickly and move on. I think in terms of the problem solving mentality in the tech space, we have people who just live for the next challenge. They love really difficult problems and they are relentless about it. But that means that they are not afraid to experiment. They're not afraid to fail, to learn and try again. But I do recognize uh, looking at the health sector versus the tech and banking sector that the risks we are working with here are not really the same, right? In a hospital, we're working against the clock to save a patient's life. But in the banking sector, what we are doing also has the potential to move markets, which can adversely impact our economy if we're not careful. Other differences I've noticed is around investment. So to be at the forefront of the financial industry, you have to be the best, you have to be the fastest, and you have to deliver the best customer experience, the best platform, the best product. 
And to do that, it means you have to invest in infrastructure. You have to invest in people and you have to invest in design. Of course, similar to everywhere else, we have the internal bureaucracy, we have to rape tape. But in the finance sector, we're not really dependent on a central funding machine that only dribbles down funding bit by bit. We're quite fast-paced. We make the case. We present how we're going to do the return on investment. We show how we have that forward vision, long-term vision, and we just get working on it. So things move a lot quicker. I think we're also much more willing to try new technology. Our risk appetite is much larger. So if you look at the finance sector, we've been using automation for many years. We use a lot more of big data, how we bring data silos together. And we are not afraid to leverage the latest AI tech to really just give us that extra edge. So I think those are some of the uh, differences that I have noticed. I love what you said about money dribbling from the centre. I think that's uh, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. So when we met, Jenny, we were both on a panel at a digital health conference earlier in the year talking about the business case, making the business case for digital transformation. And you brought a non-exec perspective to that conversation. So, so maybe just move on to talking about investment. So first of all, investment from the centre. So there's an amount of investment going in from the centre just to really get the basics in place around electronic patient records and so on. What, what's your take on that sort of dribble effect and the money coming from the centre and is it sufficient? And are there other ways we could better organise how we do get the right money into hospitals and trusts so that they can build the right digital infrastructure? Yeah, I think a lot of different trusts were probably at a different level of technology maturity. So some people need more money than others. So how do you make that case? And if you think about investing at EPR, that will be the largest investment you will make in any system and for, for many years going forward. Um, so how do you make sure you have the right system? You are justifying the money that you're asking for and you're putting in place a system that gives you that five to 10 year vision of getting where you want to be, to have more insight-driven decision-making, but also be able to transform the way that your staff are working. Because ultimately, if, it's, if, if like I mean, if I take my hospital, where we had to log into 11 different systems just to get our patients' history, not all of those 11 systems always work. You can't remember your password. Not all those 11 systems are up-to-date, so you're having to guess which one is the most up-to-date uh, piece of information about your patient. That's a very inefficient way of working. So how do we get create a system that gives us that efficiency, gives us that productivity, but also delivers on that five, 10-year vision that we want, where we could leverage a lot more around data and analytics, a lot more AI, a lot more about in terms of understanding unstructured patient notes. And I think the solutions out there are not cheap. So once you go into a solution, you have to almost stick with it. You can't just say, well, actually, let me start from scratch. You just throw a whole lot of money away. And those huge sums, they don't just magically appear. You have to really make sure you justify it. And, and sometimes it does feel like scraping the bottom of the barrel because you get a bit from the center, you get a bit from somewhere else, you find a bit of grants, and then maybe you have to take steal some of another program to do this project that you want to do. I think it's tough. So when you invest in something like this, you have to really hold your nerve. You have to ensure that your exec team has that vision and has that commitment to deliver what you want to do. And you need a very, I think, a very strong exec IT team who understand what they're doing, who have gone around and looked at the market and understand what we're doing and compared it against the different solutions in the market. And then to then convince the non-exec and the exec team that what we're going for is indeed the right solution. I think the money is, is always going to be a problem, but it's a matter of how we've assessed the different solutions out there to ensure that we do get a return on investment. 
I'm thinking about your digital team, the digital team that you'll have in every trust. And in my experience, when I was in the NHS, they were a cost improvement line, just like other services. So every year they were being asked to take money out of their budget, contribute towards a reduced budget year on year. But actually, the IT department needs to be an investment, doesn't it? It needs to be invested in order to create and look after the right infrastructure, reduce those cybersecurity risks, or you know, all these really important parts of operations within an NHS organization. Have you managed to make that case that, that your IT department needs investing in, or what are your reflections on how you get the right people and the right capacity and capability within a digital team? When we wrote our EPR, our digital team was really important. And it was not just about could they deliver the platform technically, it was could they change the culture that was written within our hospital to get people on board. And changing the culture is a difficult thing because you have people who are quite comfortable with paper. You have people who probably don't even need to use the EPR. You have people who don't understand what an EPR really should do. And you have people who maybe just are very adverse to technology. So you have people of different levels of digital maturity that you have to bring along the journey with you. And and I truly value our technology team because they had a strong focus on the people journey. They understood that before we had to roll on EPR, we have to talk to the people understand why they might need an EPR, give them the reasons and let them understand that it is the best way forward and take on board their concerns, their worries and their input in how we can implement an EPR that will work for everyone. And then planning the rollout is ensuring that you have these digital champions who are not just somebody who comes in externally, but somebody from within the trust, somebody who understands the job, whether it's clinical or non-clinical, and bring their own colleagues along because word of mouth is always the strongest. If something's bad, oh my God, the the word of mouth, nobody's going to use it at all. But if you have someone who's able to hold your hand and say, let me take you through it, And let me patiently sit with you and show you why you need to use it. And there's somebody who you have worked with for the last few years that's really compelling and really strong. So we recruit a lot of digital champions to help us with the rollout. And I think it it really helped with improving the understanding of why we needed an EPR within our trust. So our IT team, I couldn't thank them enough. They had strong leadership. And they were a cohesive team. They backed each other up. And so, yes, we absolutely have to invest in them because I think so many things are moving towards the digital arena right now that if we don't, then we will only be behind everybody else on the curve. And when it comes to making the case, you know, a board has to think about so many different things, so many priorities, so many things coming at a board externally. What have you found resonates for people if you're there making the case for digital and that as a priority? I just wonder with your exec and non-exec colleagues, what like lands for them when you're when you're trying to make the case that they need to prioritize and think about digital? Okay, then therefore I was I will approach this from a few different angles. If I was on the board and I heard a new case come in, how would I perceive it to make sure that it's a very robust case and that it's compelling enough for me? to take it forward. One is the research that has been done already before you even brought this business case and started writing it down. Is there a problem that you have to solve? Have you spoken to people who are currently using it, who are experiencing the problem or who benefit from it? Because ultimately the best platform, the best digital platform is useless unless people actually adopt it and use it. 
So have you done your homework and spoken to the people and validated that it is indeed a problem? Secondly, have you explored the different angles from this problem on how you tackle it? Because there will be five, ten different options. Now, how do you know which one's the best? So have you explored everything that's out there and done a comprehensive job? Three, have you spoken to people who have already adopted this solution? We cannot reinvent the wheel each time. We cannot learn from mistakes that other people have gone through before. So do you have this good network where you can tap into other people who have used this solution or who have tackled this problem? And what are the lessons learned from that? And then when you then take this business case onto board, how, how good are you at storytelling? How good at you are delivering the narratives such that I understand the problem? It's so easy for people to just throw jargon whether it's technical jargon, where it's clinical jargon. Yes, it might make you look smart, but actually the people who are trying to digest the information, they might not be able to catch up. And then if you have lost them at the beginning, it's very hard to kind of bring them back because they never truly understood the problem you were trying to present in the first place. So how well are you at understanding your audience and communicating that message to them? And then lastly is, is during the Q&A time. Because have you anticipated the questions I am going to ask? Have you done your research into your audience or the people around the table? Do you understand well enough to know that what questions are they going to ask? So, for example, I'm always going to maybe approach it from a technical angle. So make sure you, you understand the technology, you understand the tech stack, understand the huge future vision of tech. Or maybe there's somebody who is quite finance focused. So can you make sure you, you, you are able to address the financial questions that are coming up from them? So understand your audience so you look really well prepared. And that to me is, I guess, how you win the minds and hearts of the board. I really learned the hard way, I guess. That storytelling piece is so important and you have to tell, you know, a different angle on a story that resonates for different members of the board who are holding particular um, areas of interest. And I learned to always go and meet with individual board members before presenting a business case to a board. And I remember in particular, I can't remember what the business case was for, but it was about equality and diversity. And the finance director at the time couldn't give and he just could, didn't care. <laughs> but we had a conversation about the bottom line and all the evidence for the business case for diversity. Then he was brought in. And funnily enough, in that workshop, I'll never forget it, he became the biggest advocate. And I was like, oh, that was such a good life lesson for me about people might not have the same motivations as you have, but it's finding a way to make something land with them that piques their interest or feels relevant or, you know what I mean, that they, they will care about even if it's not quite the same thing that you care about. Yeah, it's interesting You, if you take time to meet people. So when you go to board to present, you are not just a name on a piece of paper. Actually, people feel that connection to you. And when they do know you as a person, they're always there to help and they want to support and sponsor you. So I think taking that time, investing that time to meet with the board members really does make a difference. Yeah. Listen, I want to just switch gears a little bit. So we've talked quite a bit about how you do all of this within the NHS, but like me, you mentor lots of startups, you're at the entrepreneurial end of the spectrum as well in terms of digital health. I just wonder what your reflections are thinking about the companies and the clinical entrepreneurs that you see and the journey they're on. So you've taken us through what it's like 
uh, to a board, the sort of things that board members care about, these big digital transformation programs and how you get the right capability to deliver the change. But what about those little startups with those really neat ideas who potentially could make a difference in the NHS, but boy, have they got a challenge ahead of them if they want to have a proposition that will truly be bought and adopted within healthcare. So just give me a bit of a take on it from the other side. Yeah, so I mentor a lot of startups through my work with Imperial College London, and I do see a lot of really talented young people come up, and they want to solve those bigger problems. They want to solve the things that are so hard and that people like me would just go like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm too tired to do this. I'm too old and I don't have the energy. But they are willing to grasp it by the horns and say, actually, we can do it. And the energy they have, the creativity they have, and the resilience they have, they just never give up. Really makes me want to cheer them on from the sidelines. And it's great when you see them emerge as a success. But what's really difficult, though, is, one, they are trying to solve problems that are embedded in the NHS. And although they might have great ideas, it's really hard for them to get data, very hard for them to get real-life data to sometimes validate their solutions. And two, it's really hard to penetrate the NHS to say, I'm a little startup. I've got this really innovative idea. I might have a solution. Will you take a chance on me and let me try it out? It's really hard to get into an NHS hospital to do any sort of pilot because I think there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of bureaucracy, you have to be on certain lists. And also the NHS doesn't really like taking risk. So unless you have ticked all those boxes and you are certified and regulators have looked at you, it's really hard to kind of like um, get a leg through the door. And thirdly, because these talented young entrepreneurs, they're really young. What they don't have is that real life experience of seeing when things go wrong. They have a high appetite for risk, but they just haven't got those years behind them to see like those edge cases that happen either through a, a patient or through the technology stack that they are building. And I think it's through these different mentorship programs that we have, whether it's clinical entrepreneurs, whether it's stuff I'm working with, the NHS Innovation Accelerator on, or Imperial. I think having those mentors have come in who have 20, 30 years of experience to tell them sometimes, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Have you thought of what could go wrong? And bringing a different perspective, I think, makes their solution a lot more robust. But yeah, I think being a young entrepreneur, they have so many things to worry about. And funding is a big issue. You are trying to survive just being out of university. You are trying to develop a solution. Yet when you go to investors, they expect you to be working full-time on it. But hey, actually, we still need to pay the bills. So funding is always something that's forefront of their mind. And when it comes to designing, especially like medtech platforms, where it's really technical, you have people who love the nitty-gritty of developing a technical solution and dealing with technical issues. But then on the other side, they need to sell the solution. They need to be fundraising. They need to think about financials. And sometimes there's a very different mindset. So when I look at startup teams where actually they have co-founders, sometimes I think that's where the complement is really great because you have somebody who will think about the technical aspect and somebody who's actually really good in selling. So I think it's quite hard for sometimes if you're a single founder to kind of juggling all those balls. So having co-founders sometimes makes it, uh, it, it makes it easier, I think, on that startup journey. I always think if you can get like a clinician, a tech person and an evidence academic person. That's always a really nice um, trio for a startup. And I'm always struck by how the context in which a technology is used is as important as the technology itself. And I think sometimes 
founders who haven't got that tacit lived experience of working in a complex healthcare system maybe underestimate how their product will work and those sorts of the barriers that they will face. Just even if a technology has the right evidence, it clearly is going to make an impact, improve patient experience, make life easier for staff. Even then, people adopting that technology and changing their behavior in a very pressurized system is a really tricky thing to pull off in my experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do see a lot of junior doctors who have been frustrated within the system and a lot of them actually do take the time out and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to balance being a junior doctor plus also I'm going to try to solve this problem. Heads off to them. I mean, to juggle the long hours as a junior doctor plus try to develop a solution, it is tough. But we do see a lot of these people come into the startup space. What's your key sort of advice you give to a startup when you're mentoring? What are the, you know, what are the top three things that you're keen that they be thinking about when you're spending time with them? Ooh, all the startups we have and people, they're so different. But I would always say curiosity. Always just keep asking the questions, not just asking the question of yourself. Challenge yourself, challenge each other within the team and also be curious about the people you are serving. Don't always assume that you know the right solution. People use things in really different and surprising ways. So make sure you're always engaged with them. So just be curious about everything that you are doing. And I think also building that support network around you because developing a solution and a lot of the times either failing because it doesn't quite work, failing because it's hard to get investment and that rejection can be quite disheartening. So you need to have the support network around you to really maintain your resilience, that you can keep going, somebody who will continue to support you and lift you up when times are down. So building that peer support network is quite important. And just never be afraid to ask for help, whether it's from your peer group or whether it's from mentors like myself, or just going to networking events and just raising your profile because you never know when you will need each other. I think that can be quite useful. I think that's um, really good advice. And I definitely, when I've done entrepreneurial things sort of around and outside the NHS, learned to ask for help, which I was not very good at doing, actually. But I've really learned, learned one, how to ask for help, and then two, how to pay it forward to other people. When I was young, I didn't like to ask for help either. It makes you feel weak, isn't it? Uh, but actually, when you go up further up the ranks and when people do ask you for help because now you are able to offer that advice, actually, it's quite a nice feeling to feel needed and people love being asked for help, actually. So I would say if you are young in your career, actually, just don't be afraid. What's the worst that going to happen? They'll just say no, right? Then you move on to the next person. I learned that, actually. It took me a while to work out that people actually like being asked for help. So, um, you know, sort of, yeah, absolutely. That yeah, I think that's uh, really, really good advice to give to any entrepreneur at any age, actually, and any stage in their um, journey. So listen, I want to change gears again as we come towards the end of the conversation, Jenny, and talk a little bit about equality and diversity. So you're a woman of colour in a really senior non-exec position on a board. The NHS is dominated by women in terms of delivery, but as you get more senior, you tend to get less female roles and less ethnic minority roles. So I just wonder what your reflections are and maybe a comparison to the corporate world that you've come to as well. Is it very similar or is it very different? So if I think about where I was in the corporate space, where I was a female working in investment banking, 
where there already are not many females to start with, and then working in technology in investment banking, a lot of the times I was the only female at the table, the only female in the room, the only female in the department. And you learn to deal with it at that time. And as hard as it is, you just, what you do is you just grow very thick skin. But when you are very young in your career, it's very hard to have that confidence and it does knock you back. And I do feel that when I was much younger, the reason it was so hard is there were no role models that looked like myself that I could either seek advice from or feel like there was a path to success. I think that has changed a bit more now. And so I do try as much as I can if I'm a role model is to ensure that I always have time to talk to people. When I go around my trust or when I'm mentoring different teams, I do say my door is always open. And I try to look, see what's difficult for them at that point in their career and come in and hopefully offer some advice. But during my time in banking, there was a lot of that unconscious bias behavior towards women and towards ethnic minorities. There was a lot of the microaggressions. And it is a hard thing to understand at a time. And it takes about 10, 15, 20 years before it kind of all starts to make sense. So how do I help people who are on that same journey as myself? I mean, there's this quote by Michelle Obama that says, we, we should always have three friends in our life. One that walks ahead, who we look up to, one who walks beside us, and one who we reach back and bring along after we have cleared the way. And so I try to make sure that I can be one of those three people to the people that I interact with. I think in my trust, it is hard for people to sometimes see the career progression for themselves when you are so tired and when maybe you don't feel like you have the support. So I do try as much as I can, either through the BAME network or through the Women Network, and say, again, my door is open, right? It's about being approachable because people don't know where they can go to unless they talk to somebody and seeing that it is possible for them. So I know I can't remember your original question now, Victoria. I've been rambling on, haven't I? <laughs> well, I think you've answered it. I was really curious to hear your experience. And I, I love what you've said about how you help other people who are maybe, you know, you're clearing the path a bit for. I'm also struck by in the world of entrepreneurs and, and founders, it tends to be quite white and male dominated as well. But we have got this sort of femtech movement and we're, we're seeing more digital health products and services and we have a women's strategy now for the NHS. So I just wonder, are you applying the same things, I guess, that you're applying in your NHS world to your entrepreneur and uh, startup world as well? Yeah. So, so it's part of Imperial. I, I really do try to mentor as many femtech founders as I can, because I think that the femtech solutions that are out there, they are not enough. And if we look at female representation on, um, or the amount of funding that female founders get, that, that's hardly anything. I think I was looking at some statistics recently, and uh, between the years 2011 and 2020, and if you look at digital health investment in the US, um, only 3.3% went into femtech. Now, but yet females, right? We are more than 50% of the population. So why is it that we're only getting 3.3%? And sometimes that's also due to how many femtech founders do we have out there who are pitching? 
And you think about who are they pitching to, right? So that if they're pitching to venture capital funds, how many female venture capitalists do you have on the table itself? On average, about 10% if you are lucky. So can you imagine a female founder going to a venture capital meeting, having to present to a table who might be full of men? And these men, they don't have lived experience of the problem. They don't really need the solution that's being sold. They don't understand it. But all these men around the table, they have a mother, a wife, a daughter who actually will benefit from it. So how do we increase the diversity among that table itself such that when females do present, one, they're going to be feel more confident. They know that their solution that they're pitching is being understood and is needed. And then, then we can start getting more money and more diversity and more investment into this space. So I definitely do try to mentor these female founders to also boost their confidence, say it is possible what you're trying to do and it's so needed what you're trying to do, but you just, again, have to kind of grow that really thick skin and just make sure that somebody hears your voice. And I think, as you say, you can open maybe some doors for them that might not be so easy for them to open themselves. So, so having allies both from within communities, but also having male allies as well is really important. Those people who are in positions of power and authority who can create a bit of space and notice and recognise when women aren't included or involved and point it out and make the change as well. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so um, going back to your role as a non-exec and with your digital sort of hat on, I guess, what are your sort of key priorities? What are the things that are on your mind most as a non-exec when it comes to digital? I think, are we moving fast enough to improve the lives of our staff? Because when I look at our staff, I, I think we all have to recognise that our staff are very tired. They have been working nonstop for the last three or four years. Can they take more change? I think that's change fatigue. But yet we are piling upon them with a new EPR. We're saying, well, actually, there are these fantastic automation tools you're, you're using. But people are so tired. It's very hard for them to learn something new. So how do we make things more intuitive? What are, what are the bottlenecks when it comes to staff productivity? And how do we make it easier for them to do the things? And I think a lot of people in healthcare, they go into healthcare because it's about the patient. It's about spending time with them. It's not about filling in some paperwork and then re-entering some system or logging into something where you've forgotten your password and then all you want to do is just tear your hair out. You feel frustrated. Patient feels a frustration. Nobody's going to go anywhere. So how do we make their lives easier? And so for me, how do we use digital tools in a very intelligent way that can seamlessly interact with what our staff are trying to do to make their lives easier. For me, that's a thing that I do worry about. Are they good enough tools on the market? Are these tools affordable for us? Do they fit in with the workflow that our staff are using? Those are the questions I have. I think that's it. For me, it's about making my staff bring joy to the work that they are doing. And so right now, I don't think there's enough of that joy. That's a lovely way to put it. And also just the fact that you're thinking not about the input of the technology, but the experience that staff and patients are going to have, which is ultimately what it boils down to. And yeah, I think the um, technology that's out there at the moment that's commonly bought is not always as good as it could be. So there's a lot of frustration around, I think, on behalf of staff. So just to finish up then, Jenny, and it's been such a privilege having you on this podcast with me. I've so enjoyed our conversation. If you just had to, as a non-exec, 
pull out one thing, one small thing that a trust could do that would make a big difference to um, the experience of staff, to the adoption of technology? What would it be? If you had to pick one thing that you wanted to focus on tomorrow, what would that one thing be? That one thing is not necessarily a tool or a digital tool. I think it's just that active listening. It's showing our staff that we have the time for them and we genuinely want to know how we can improve things for them. And listening is not just waiting to speak. That active listening of, I'm just going to sit here quietly. I'm going to listen to your story. It might take time for you to want to open up to me, but I truly do care. And, and I wish people just did more of that as opposed to information being pushed down and trying to do a one-size-fits-all. Actually, everybody's individual. Everybody has different perspectives, different concerns, different worries. And how do we take the time to do that active listening? And also then after listening is that follow-up, right? It's so easy for me to go and speak to someone and say, just tell me your problems. And then I disappear. And then I talk to somebody else and I've forgotten about them. No, it's actually... How do I ensure that I am following up, make that person feel that their time invested in me is well spent? That's a lovely place to end. And I'm sure your trust is very fortunate to have you as a non-exec, Jenny. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was a great pleasure, Victoria. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.